If you're a pastor, elder, deacon, nonprofit board member, or business owner, I need you to listen to this. K&K Furnishings needs to be on your shortlist. K&K Furnishings are committed to helping you find the right furnishings for your church or organization. These guys specialize in quality worship seating, welcome centers, cafes, nurseries, classrooms, as well as stage and podium furnishings. The two owners have over 70 years of combined pastoral experience, so not only will every transaction be handled with integrity and professionalism, but they have the experience to provide you with the perfect solutions for your furniture needs, and they absolutely understand your budget constraints and demands. K&K Furnishings are devoted to providing you quality pieces that save you money. They can do this because they don't have the overhead of a brick and mortar store and they have relationships with over 200 manufacturers nationwide. Look, we all know there's a lot of junk out there. K&K understands that many times bargains aren't true money savers. They end up costing you more in the long run. At K&K, they believe that quality furnishings don't have to be outrageously expensive. And here's the best part. K&K Furnishings sells nationally and can also provide in-person consultations in Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana. If you can't meet in person, they'd be happy to set up a Zoom consultation for you today. So whatever your next project is, whether it's your home office or your church sanctuary, K&K Furnishings is the only place you need to look. Go to www.kkfurnishings.com to see how they can help you or call 567-318-4520. That's www.kkfurnishings.com or call 567-318-4520 or click on the link in the description of this episode. K&K Furnishings, furnishing business, education, worship, and hospitality for the glory of God. Hey guys, before we get into this week's episode, I got to tell you about Jacob's Supply. Jacob's Supply is the place you got to go for all of your material needs. These guys bring you construction supplies and appliances for up to 50% off retail price, all brand new. Your home builder needs some lumber? Jacob's Supply has you covered. You a deacon at your church and you're in charge of that next Narthex floor job? Jacob's Supply has got you. Heck, they got Cortec Luxury Vinyl Plank right now for $3.59 a square foot. Go look that stuff up at Lowe's or Home Depot, man. That stuff is selling for $7 to $8 a square Square foot. That's over 50% off retail. Even if you just have some home projects you're working on, Jacob Supply is the place for you. I just built an outdoor grilling area this spring for that old smoker and grill. Guess where I got the metal roof, lumber, and screws? Yeah, that's right, Jacob Supply. Looking for a fridge, stove, washer, dryer? They got them all, and their name brand. Samsung, Bosch, Frigidaire, all 20, 30, 40% off retail. Brand new and ready for you. Located in Temperance, Michigan, it's worth it to stop by even if you're a few hours away. And remember, Jacob Supply can ship products nationally too. So even if you're out of state, you gotta check them out. Follow them on Facebook at Jacob Supply or call them direct at 734-224-0978. That's 734-224-0978. 0978. Remember, Jacob Supply, quality building materials at wholesale prices. And now, on to the show. Ah, yes, the fine, fine tunes of Jason Hamlin, my trusty co-host who is not here tonight, actually. If you're watching this uh, on YouTube or any of the places you watch our podcast, you'll see I'm sitting alone tonight. He had some work duties that called him away, so I am all by myself tonight, outside of our guest, which we'll get to here shortly. But uh, it's going to be a different dynamic. I've been sitting next to someone for the last uh, 21 months, 22 months, and now I'm here by myself. So there's no one to laugh at my non-funny jokes tonight night and make me sound funnier than I am to you people. But I think we're going to get through it because we have a great episode. Before we start that, though, did want to talk about the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. This episode is brought to you by them. They have a Rice Lecture Series out of Detroit, and they have Dr. Joel Beek speaking there, who is uh, from the Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. This is a free seminary, guys. Now, I'm going to be headed up there on March 18th. It's in Allen Park, Michigan. If you live in Michigan, Ohio, even parts of Indiana, it's not a very long drive. I met uh, Dr. Joel Beek down at G3 conference uh, last year, and I got to tell you, he spoke at G3, and he was absolutely amazing. This is part of their, their Rice Lecture Series, like I was saying, and it's going to be phenomenal starts at 8 a.m., goes into the early afternoon. It is a free event, so make sure you go check it out at dbts.edu forward slash rice. That's dbts.edu forward slash rice, and we're going to link that up everywhere you see our podcast, so um, looking forward to that event. But we have here with us uh, 
not in studio, but by the powers and magic of uh, technology, as we've been doing the last few years. Uh, we have him on a video through Zoom. It's Alex Zink, and he is the host of Undying Light Podcast. How are you, Alex? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I am good. And this was a fun one. And I always like these types of conversations. I've been following uh, Alex on Instagram. He's going to give us his Instagram account here shortly. And I loved what he was posting. And I listened to a few of his podcasts. And I said, we got to have this guy on the podcast and just talk about Lutheranism. Uh, He's in seminary right now. His podcasts are just very uh, concise and full, chock full of information, which if you've been a listener of this podcast for any time, you know I love that kind of stuff. Fall asleep at night reading legislative bills and theological books and all that kind of stuff. A little bit of a nerd there. But um, I thought, man, it would be great to have him on and uh, talk about this for a little bit. So Alex, we are very happy that you're here. Why don't you give us maybe just a one or two minute introduction of yourself and tell the people a little bit about what you do? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's always an honor to be on uh, any show, especially this one. And uh, I was actually talking to a couple people in my church today. I was, you know, I can always, I always kind of uh, have this little kind of uh, giddy schoolboy moment uh, when I'm kind of, I don't say bragging about being on a a guest on another show, but it it is definitely a privilege uh, to be on this show uh, among the other stuff that I've done in the past, but a little bit about me. I'm pastor of a church in a small community in Iowa, uh, about an hour north of Des Moines. We're uh, about a 120 member congregation. Uh, church is 165 years old, and uh, we are LCMC Lutheran Church. And I'll get into that as we dig into the show why that is extremely significant. <laughs> and uh, but I come from a Calvinist background. I can, and and prior to even that, I attended the Lutheran Church, and uh, you know, so I've been kind of going all around the circle of, <laughs> right. of faith, and uh, and so now I would you know venture to say I'm more of a confessional Lutheran, and uh, I'll, you know we'll expound on what that means during uh, the show, and but I mean that's really me. I've been running uh, the Coram Deo Life Instagram page for uh, five years or. So. So, um, and, uh, I've recently have kind of, I don't want to say slowly put the steps away, but I'm slowing down my posts mostly because, uh, school's picking up and it's lint and I've got a lot of obligations in the church. So, you know, one post a day, uh, where I was doing three and five and seven a day for, for many years. Yeah. And, uh, so I got to slow that content down. Uh, but I do produce a lot of the podcast, so you get two episodes a week for me, wow. and so that's a lot of time in the studio recording, prepping, and digging into the content. So I do an episode Tuesday and an episode Friday. Uh, but uh, so yeah, so I'm always busy. I always got something going on. Plus, I've got uh, a married. We'll be celebrating 15 years uh, in August. Awesome. I got two wonderful kids, and uh, so they keep us uh, on our toes. <laughs> and right. uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. And and uh, yeah. So yes, I'm pretty excited to be here. I think it's a great honor. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, and I, I know exactly what you're talking about, Alex. When we get called to other podcasts and you love talking about the Word of God, you get fired up and you get excited and you do get a little giddy. Like, I, I like to, uh, yeah, let's talk, you know, let's let's discuss, let's uh, wrestle, let's iron sharpen iron. So I totally understand that. Frankly, you're in seminary. I don't know how you're doing it with a wife, two kids, two podcasts a week and uh, seven posts on Instagram. Something had to give. And I think it was the uh, Instagram was the right choice that had to give. Perfect. So yeah, we are so happy to have you on. Uh, Before we get into the uh, old meat and potatoes of the show, as we like to call it, let's uh, do a little newsy news. That's where we take three news stories from the week. We talk about it for a few minutes and we'll get your input on it too, Alex. So um, yeah, let's go. Here we go. News, the news, the newsy, newsy, news, the 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 news. Yes, and if any of you want to hire us 
to sing horrible falsetto for you. Jason and I are available. That is a Tom Askell Newsy News approved segment. So uh, I'm almost sad that I have to uh, talk about this tweet in our first news story because we we all know, all the listeners know uh, what a big fan of Elon Musk uh, Jason is. But I just thought this was interesting with everything going on. Uh, I said about six months ago on the podcast after Elon Musk came out uh, against the Build Back Better plan, I said his days are limited in the mainstream stream media. He is going to fall out of favor. Um, He will not be that darling if he starts bucking against the system that we have here in the United States. But his tweet says this, hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. And then he followed that up with, obviously, this would negatively affect Tesla, but sustainable energy solutions simply cannot react instantaneously to make up for Russian oil and gas exports. I saw that. That was from, oh, let's see, that was from 3422 at 640 p.m. on the West Coast. And I said, oh, this guy just keeps digging himself a hole with uh, the elites and the progressives and those who have one mantra, which is all green energy all the time at all costs. And then on top of that, uh, do not want to uh, have any, you know, want to have ties with Russian oil, but don't want to open up any uh, local sources or they're shutting down like the Keystone Pipeline and things like that. Uh, You guys know we cover uh, political things every once in a while here on the show, but I thought that was an interesting tweet. Bring it to your attention. Um, He is bucking the liberal system. He's kind of bucking the Republican system. He's kind of doing his own thing, which Elon does. And I would say just keep an eye on that because I would not be surprised if in the next few months, six months, maybe even a year, you see a real attack going on with Elon just because he is not falling into line with what the mantra of mainstream secularism says it has to be right now. Uh, Alex, what do you think? Are you an Elon Musk follower at all? Do you keep your head? I know you're in seminary, so your your head's in a book, in multiple books, but do you peek out from over those books to take a look at what Elon Musk is doing or no? Yeah, from, from time to time, I check in. And I mean, he does make ripples on social media. So it's kind of uh, when, when he tweets, it goes, you know, everywhere. Yeah. And so whether I see it directly from him or shared by somebody else, I'll, I'll eventually bump into it. And, you know, I, I, wherever you fall in this whole uh, debate with, you know, left versus right, mm-hmm. uh, liberal versus conservative, um, green energy versus fossil fuel, uh, the Russian oil usage, you know, I, I think Elon is really hammering a, a, something that needs to be ex- explained better because there's politicians and there's advocates for this concept that we should, as you mentioned, only do green energy all the time. The problem with that is, is there has to be something that fuels that, you know, to make a Tesla car or any battery operated car, it requires a lot of fossil fuel that goes into the plants to power those plants, to make these batteries, and then to keep them charged going on throughout the life of the car. And so you can't just abandon everything all at one time. I mean, eventually you could probably get to a place where we're using Uh, renewable resources, you know, solar and wind and water uh, more so than we would be using fossil fuels. And and I think what Elon's really driving at is, hey, we've got record inflation. We are seeing things that we haven't seen in in a number of years. And we need to just go back to what we were doing a couple of years ago and, and continue that, you know, whether you're a proponent for opening the Keystone pipeline or, or not with that in that with when that was in the works to be opened, it would have been opened uh, probably by next spring, maybe because it was only about two years from completion when he, when uh, Joe Biden stopped it last year. Right. So, you know, I, I think he's really hammering something that needs to be said. And, and I think what this is, is a nonpartisan issue and it needs to be, you know, advocated from both sides of the, of the aisle yeah. with the politicians, because, you know, this is the everyday and, and this is the problem. And I, and I think Elon sees the middle-class American uh, more vulnerable than any politician does. And he speaks heavily for that. And, and I think this tweet goes to show that this is the main focus is the middle-class American are, are they're going to be the ones that pay for this, for, you know, for the rising gas and the rising food costs. And uh, they're, they're the ones that are going to be hammered for it. the, the, the rich and the elites, the politicians, they don't have to worry about that. They don't care. Inflation could be up a hundred percent. They wouldn't care. Gas could be $15 a gallon. They wouldn't care. But when it hits 
the middle class and the poor, it's devastating. And, and I would have to agree, you know, I think, you know, and, and, and I think Elon is well aware of the, the financial hit that his company would take if the focus kind of transitioned from, you know, the green narrative to more of a fossil fuel narrative, but he's a smart man and he's going to adapt. He's got plenty of other businesses that he can pour money into and, and get a great return on. I, I think he's a well thought out, methodically planning individual. And it's not just something that he's looking, you know, within a couple of years, I think he's well planned for 25 or 50 years down the road for his company. Yeah, no, I agree. I just always think it's funny when we look in the last five years now, if you're pragmatic, you are now extreme and you're mocked by yeah. either one or other, one or the other sides of the political aisle uh, which, uh, you know, he says something very common sense like that. And then everyone lost their minds, but let's shift gears, uh, in the mm -hmm. second, uh, uh, news story, I thought this was interesting how Christian overtook the Protestant label. This is from Christianity today. I don't often pull from Christianity today, but I got two articles tonight from them. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. It says over the past several decades, American evangelicalism has moved away from the religious label symbols and buildings that used to define church. Many newer churches don't contain stained glass, crosses, or traditional sanctuary setups. They tend to adopt contemporary names, leaving out denominational labels or other religious language. It goes on to say, these trends have had a real impact on how younger people understand their religious identity. Evangelical Protestants have been debating for years over the definition and usefulness of the evangelical label. We've talked about that on this podcast. Now it appears Protestant may be losing its place too. New research shows that a significant portion of Americans no longer attach to the word Protestant the way older Americans have for generations. A finding that has implications for those who study and measure religious affiliation, as well as for church communities themselves. Themselves. The insight comes thanks to a weekly survey called The Nationscape, which Democracy Fund began in 2019. Sands is the largest public available survey data set in history, with nearly a half a million people surveyed. It goes on to say that less than 10% of those under the age of 25 uh, identify as Protestant, but yet they identify as Christian or evangelical. Those above 55, that jumps to almost 60, or I'm sorry, 50%. So it's a 50% split for those 55 and above that either refer to themselves as Christian or Protestant. So we're seeing it as a, like the article said, a generational thing as well to where I'm not even sure if you're under 25, if you, you know, I've talked to some younger people, I'm 40. So 25 is young to me. Uh, and you say the word Protestant and they go, what? What does that have to do with Catholics or what is that? No, you're claiming to be a Protestant. You don't even know, uh, you know, when you say Christian or evangelical, which, gosh, I hate that word too. But, you know, listeners, you've heard me talk about that. We're not going to get into that tonight. Uh, yeah, so you have a generation where only 10% are identifying themselves as Protestants. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Do you, you know, do you think that you're a pastor, you're in seminary, you're with the de denomination? Do you think that's an issue or do you think, eh, words don't matter? No, I think it's a major issue. And uh, in fact, I was a guest on another podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, The Pastor's Voice, where we dug into this concept a little bit. Mm. kind of the the falling away from the creeds and confessions of the church and and i think what i think there's a there was a a gap uh maybe about 15 20 years ago that started to take place uh with this pull and and i, and I think we could probably even date it back a little bit further to the uh beginning of the seeker friendly churches mm. and when those churches kind of became the the prevalent thing in society uh we started to see this drifting away from the traditional non uh traditional denominational church, uh, and whether that's Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, or Lutheran, uh, we started to get this plethora of non-denominational churches. In fact, it it's probably, you'd be hard-fetched to go into any town across the United States that has a decent-sized population and not find one non-denominational church. You'll probably find a handful of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I drive down to uh, Ames, which is about 40 minutes south of me, uh, I'm probably going to see, you know, 10 or 15 of them. And that town is not that big. Um, and it, it's interesting because in these non-denominational churches, they're not teaching creeds and confessions. Yeah. In fact, most of these churches probably don't even have a creed or confession that they adhere to. They're just uh, loosely pointing to some concepts that might come from like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And so when you have this massive pull away from you know, the tradition, traditional non-denominational, 
it makes sense that these younger individuals uh, wouldn't even understand what Protestant really means. Uh, and I think, you know, that just plays into this concept of, you know, the church losing its identity. Uh, it loses the fact that uh, church history is kind of a thing of the, you know, teaching of it is a thing of the past, or it's uh, church history is only left for the theologians and the pastors mm. and the podcasters. It's not for the layman. It's not for those who sit in the pew. The people in the pew want to be entertained. They want, you know, good and uh, fluffy, feel good messages. They don't care about doctrinal teaching. They don't care about the dry stuff of the text. They want to be uplifted and they want to feel good when they leave the church. Yeah. And I think that's a, yeah. And I think that's a huge uh, issue. And and, and I think that's the biggest difference. Like, you know, uh, I came from a non-denominational church uh, when I, before I uh, became a pastor and, and I love the the pastor in that church, uh, I'm still friends with him, and uh, he's probably got about four thousand members in his church. And he, you know, they they teach from a very, um, I would probably say he's more of kind of a a light Calvinistic Reformed t- preacher with a little bit of Arminianism sprinkled in there. I mean, it's kind of a blend of both. And I think his, and I th- but I think the approach that he takes is, uh, you know, he teaches through the Bible and, and I think people appreciate that, but there is no uh, Lord's prayer being proclaimed. There's no creed or confession being proclaimed. And I think that hurts the image of the church at a large, because we're, we're losing our identity. And, and while we may be able to preach through the Bible, we, we have no association with church history because we're trying to essentially, uh, it almost feels like we're trying to do something new. Yeah. And, and I think that's where the church is starting to greatly uh, fail in entirety. And because, I mean, who knows what the church is going to do in 10 years? I know the church will never ultimately fail because Christ will sustain us, yeah. but we will have massive fallouts uh, and, and I think we're already seeing it from these big mega churches uh, in the apostates that are coming from uh, these big circles where they're just renouncing their faith. Um, the deconstruction movement that is going on is massive. And I think that is heavily influenced by these non-denominational churches where uh, there's no confession being taught. There's no doctrinal teaching happening. Yeah. Uh, and so I think this is going to lead to major implications over the next probably five, 10 years for us pastors to have to counteract this tidal wave that's coming. Yeah, no, very well said. I, I agree. And I, I'm a very literal person and I think words have meanings. And like you said at the very beginning, uh, you know, not understanding those words or those labels also tells you that they're discarding church history uh, and all those important events that that happen. So yeah, I think it is important. Something, something to look at, something to watch. Um, but I just thought it was an interesting story. All right, let's round it out here with the last one. You might know more about this than I do, but I, I saw it come across my my desk a few days ago. Uh, this is once again from Christianity Today. Another UMC conference delay prompts conservative churches to leave. It's a very long article, but essentially we have the United Methodist Church has delayed its general conference meeting for a third time due to the continuing COVID-19 pandemic. In response, some conservative United Methodists have announced they will preemptively leave the denomination rather than wait for the long-anticipated meeting. Delegates to the general conference were expected to take up a proposal to split the denomination over disagreements on the full inclusion of LGBTQ LMNOP members at the, I added that last part, meeting of the global decision-making body scheduled for August 29th to September 6th in Minneapolis. So essentially what we have is another delay, two more years for the United Methodist Church to make some type of decision at a delegation. And now we have a lot of more conservative and socially conservative, theologically conservative, conservative Methodists that are breaking off. And I think in the article, it says the global Methodist church is what they uh, want to start. And they said, no, we're not waiting another two years. And I I don't know. I read the article and I went, is this an excuse? They said, well, there's passports and there's travel and we are an international church, so we can't get them all here and we want to have full attendance. Sounds good, but they've been waiting on this. I think now this is going on four years. So that would be six years to just get to an assembly to make a decision on... uh, 
uh, on this LGBTQ issue that's going on in the United Methodist Church. So it looks like they're going to make a preemptive break here, some of these uh, theologically conservative Methodists. What do you think about that, Alex? Well, I think this was uh, something that's kind of long overdue for the Methodist Church. Uh, this is very similar to what happened with the ELCA Lutherans back in uh, 2008 and 2009. Uh, a lot of lead up and build up to uh, a big conference that essentially broke and saw the the splitting of the ELCA into smaller uh, denominations or senates, if you would call them that. Um, and what I I've really kind of what I've heard in the scope of this entire time with the Methodist uh, pressure is that this uh, push from the uh, Methodists to stay conservative in their doctrinal stance comes from the African Methodist churches, mm. uh, those that are in Africa. Uh, it has very little uh, uh, acceptance by the American Methodists. The Americans want to add this progressive ideology you know, where they accept and uh, allow LGBTQ, as you said, elemental P, preachers and people and all that. Uh, and, and, and I think the implications here in the West, we're seeing, uh, you know, these, these pastors and these laymen uh, coming up and being accepted in the church and then pastoring a church. Um, and we've got now radical sects of the Methodist church that have emerged. And, and I think it's uh, something that's overdue for the Methodists to deal with. And I think if this group is going to split they, they need to do it and just take who wants to be with them and just essentially start yeah, their own on. set and move on. Yep. Yeah, I wouldn't know why they would want to prolong that for two years at internal turmoil. Mm -hmm. And it looks like someone's making a decision there. And they're, um, like I said, going to make a preemptive break. So we'll watch that closely. So that was all I had for news, you guys. Um, let's get into the main and subject. that was the newsy news. Cool. So, Alex, let's get into Lutheranism. I would love for you to educate our listeners. And like I said, guys, go check him out at Undying Light Podcast. Phenomenal podcast with a lot of information. Um, it's one of those ones where you know don't 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 try to do two things at once. Don't try to you know do the yard work and listen. Just sit down, listen as you're laying in bed, whatever it is, driving to work. That way you can really chew on it. And I and I do appreciate a good chewy podcast, which Alex has. So why don't we start with what is the historical? kind of let's go big picture the the history of lutheranism kind of you know we won't go too long here i know we could probably do three four hours on this but the reader's digest version i'll show my age there that used to be a saying kids um <laughs> where uh historically what is lutheranism and then maybe we get into like you were uh, talking about the elca the lcmc stuff like that so historically where does lutheranism come from and how is it was it established sure so uh, I, I hope that your listeners would, you know, have a basic understanding of the Reformation, but <laughs> yeah, we don't uh, have to go that deep. I think they, yeah, they get that. Yeah. Um, and so really you could assert that Luther was one of the original, uh, beginners of the Reformation. Obviously there's preemptive people, John Wycliffe and, and so on before him, um, John Huss and the, uh, what was John Huss, like 1400 or 1500s. So 102, um, he was and, yeah, 102 years before the 95 theses. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's people prior to Luther, but Luther was the one that uh, essentially sparked this controversy. And what really happened in 1517 was kind of a combination of a few things. First, Luther sought out to not actually change anything in the church. He didn't seek to reform the church. He didn't seek to start a revolution or, or anything like that. His whole premise was, look, uh, the, the Catholic church is preaching this merit system that you have to buy tokens or pay to get out of purgatory ahead of time, uh, or you, you have to buy a trinket to get your loved one out of purgatory. And so they were selling these indulgences and these merits and Luther was like, no, this is wrong. And so that's really where the 95 thesis come from is it's a, an attack to the Roman Catholic church in most of that landscape. And so if you read the 95 thesis, probably take, you, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes to get through them all. Uh, I'm a slow reader. So <laughs> it might take me a couple of days, um, but this is just, that's the assertion that Luther was taking. 
And so he nails this on October 31st in 1517, the door at Wittenberg. And that was the spark. Um, But the Reformation really didn't start picking up uh, in Germany until the Diet of Worms in 1521, where Luther was uh, summoned before uh, this group of Roman Catholic uh, bishops and priests and representatives and, you know, uh, um, political uh, high standing people. And basically, uh, they brought all of his works to the table and said, do you renounce all these works? And Luther, on the second day that he was at the diet, uh, comes in and basically gives him, I can't. I can't renounce what I've written because this is what the word of God says. And I am held to that standard, not to your standard. I'm paraphrasing everything Luther says, of course, but... Uh, he asserts himself to uh, stand against the tides of the Roman Catholic church. And he says, I cannot go against any of my writings. And so um, the church essentially excommunicates him, kicks him out of the church. uh, And uh, with the Roman Catholic church in this time period, if you were excommunicated, chances are you would often be executed as well. uh, If you kind of were found in in some sort of violation or they actually captured you. Uh, And so the Roman Catholic church was good at putting people to death. And so Luther kind of had that uh, fear um, in his life. And that's why he actually didn't go to uh, the Augsburg diet in 1530. uh, When the uh, Augsburg confession was written, Uh, he just had influence on it, but he didn't actually was not actually present because if he had gone to Augsburg, uh, chances are he would have been captured and executed. So a lot of, there's a lot of history to uh, Luther and his life. Uh, and the book I would probably read is uh, by James Kettleston. If you're, if you really want to get into Luther's life, James Kettleston, it's uh, Luther, the reformer. And I think you can pick it up for a couple bucks on Amazon. And it, it really is a deep dive into kind of almost uh, like a week by week or day by day snapshot of his life. And it, it really breaks down all of the, the things that, that cultivated to the Lutheran Reformation. Um, and so there was early groups that would assert themselves as Lutherans, even though Luther himself despised that term because he didn't want people to uh, associate anything with him. And he wanted people to just to simply address themselves as Christians. Mm. Um, towards the end of his life, he was much more accepting of that because of the, uh, the, the bigger split that had occurred over the years. Uh, between him and the Roman Catholic church. Uh, And then even uh, towards the end of his life, you start to see the split from the Lutherans and the other reformed uh, groups that were sparking uh, throughout Europe in that time period. Uh, And so Luther was, was essentially a pioneer in this. Uh, But then we get people like uh, Zwingli who comes along and we got John Calvin and John Knox and, you know, many of the other prominent uh, reformed preachers who uh, carried the flag in their own context, and they had their own volition against the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, interestingly enough, they had their own uh, debates against Lutheranism. And uh, so there's there was a lot of conflict uh, in the 15 and 1600s. Uh, but Lutheranism really is a focus on the teachings and preachings that Martin Luther gave. And uh, I've always kind of attested Luther not to be a systematic preacher uh, t- teacher. He wasn't a you know a theologian that sat in in the classroom and wrote systematic books and uh, broke, you know, and took doctrine and made it, you know, uh, took sure. a deep dive into it. He was a preacher and he was a, he was a, a, a man who would live with his congregation. And so that's where we, it's a big difference, I think, than uh, somebody like John Calvin, who was much more of a systematic uh, preacher than a, uh, just a preacher preacher. I don't know if there's really a right. good word for it, right. but uh, so Luther, you know, really, has this focus and uh, drive to lead people to Christ. And in fact, there's a book, um, oh, I got it in my library. I can't even think of the name of it, but it's, uh, I think it's called like Preaching Under the Cross or something like that. And anyway, it's a book that details how Luther approached um, his ministry uh, in terms of times of like conflict and emotional distress for his congregation and how when everything he wrote, these letters that he wrote to people, and there's hundreds of letters that he wrote to people over the years that we have. And each of these are detailing one central thing that's reoccurring in all of them is the fact that Christ forgives you of your sins. Even though you feel like the world is against you, 
Christ is still for you. And so there's this theme that carries on through his preaching all throughout his ministry. And, uh, and I think that was a big segue. Now you get into the Lutheran faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start to see softening of language uh, <clears throat> with Philip Melanchthon. That was his protege. This was essentially the second Lutheran, if you would, that comes on the scene. And uh, Philip was a great theologian, and he brought a lot to the Lutheran church. But there's this uh, kind of a pull away over time that uh, it starts to soften the language and starts to accept a little bit more of a synergistic uh, approach to uh, the doctrinal teachings versus a mono. Uh, monergism uh, approach. And so uh, I would say, and I actually even argued this in a term paper uh, in scenario a while back that, you know, uh, Lutherans today aren't traditional Lutherans. We are, we, we can't go back in most circles and say that we are authentically Lutheran because we're not teaching what Luther taught. We're teaching what Melanchthon taught or what other theologians down the line have taught. Uh, or what really kind of a collection of uh, churches like in the ELCA are teaching. And so we're not necessarily authentic Lutherans. And that's one thing that my seminary is really big on is calling us back to what Luther taught and equipping us with how he brought his ministry into the church. And so the the seminary, I'm a part of Sioux Falls Seminary, uh, is really cultivating the lifestyle of a preacher and and influence that Luther had in the life of a preacher. So again, you know, we could, we could talk on this topic for hours. Uh, There's so much history to, to all of the reformation uh, across all of these various denominations. So fast forward 500 years, you're part of the LCMC. What are some main uh, doctrinal stances that you take as someone as part of the uh, LCMC, what are some of those orthodox? You know, I'm thinking communion, baptism. Uh, you know, sabbatarian or not, uh, some of those things that might separate you from a non-denominational evangelical church that calls themselves a Christian, or even some of those within uh, my Reformed community that love the doctrines of grace. But when you start talking about uh, communion or baptism, they don't know where they land on it. They just have this kind of general evangelical view of those things. Where Where's the LCMC different in, in your view uh, as you've progressed now 500 years after Luther? Yeah. So the LCMC is a, a newer uh, formation of Lutherans. Uh, sure. We're only, I, I think we're only like 25 or so years old. Uh, and we really have only about a thousand churches in our Senate entirely around the world. So we're not an old Senate by any means. Now the ELCA is an old Senate. They've been around for a long time. Uh, and the LCMC is a split, a branch that broke away from them because of the radical teachings that they had. Uh, so the um, LCMC is kind of unique in its framework um, because they don't put emphasis in a hierarchy of power. And within the church, uh, in denominational churches, this is for Methodist and some Baptist uh, circles, uh, heavy Lutherans. Uh, Presbyterians as well experience this. Uh, they what they do is they take a Senate or like a, a, a an area, a geographical area, and they uh, sum up all of the churches that are part of this Senate, and then they put a bishop over that, and then they take a bigger area and they put a bishop over that, and then they took you know a massive area and put a bishop over that, and so there's this hierarchy of bishops all the way up to somebody like in the SBC where there's a president of the SBC that oversees all the everyday doings of the district. Uh, LCMC doesn't have a hierarchy. Uh, I don't have a bishop to report to. Uh, I have essentially just a a small support team uh, if I have needs of anything. And uh, I have have an area group that I meet with that are uh, local pastors. And there's a few people who are in kind of like a council um, for the state of Iowa. And they just kind of help regulate things. They don't make decisions that impact the church. They they just essentially assert, you know, what is the LCMC standing for ultimately? And uh, the one thing that I really appreciate with this Senate is the fact that uh, the church is given the power to, uh, you know, have its its own governing system. So, sure. that, for instance, like um, my church that I'm a part of. Uh, the pastor previously here was here for 20 years. He since retired in uh, November of 2020. And instead of 
the church having to go to a bishop and say, we need a new pastor. Can you find us one? You know, we'll wait until you, you know, shop around the market and see what we got. No, they went out on their own and called me. Uh, I, I applied, but they, you know, ended up after interviews and that called me as their pastor. And we moved down here in December of 2020 and uh, they were very quick. Many churches uh, across all denominations have to wait multiple years because of the shortage of pastors. Yeah. And so this, uh, the, the power and the beauty of this is that there's not anything that we have to wait on. We don't have to wait for decisions to be made. The church makes the decision, church votes on it, and it's the church's move, uh, which, which can also be a downfall um, because it, it's not uh, completely sound uh, unified, I guess is a good word, across all of the LCMC churches. Uh, so you can get a little bit of a variety. Sure. In how the teaching is done, um, whether you stand for or or accept female pastors, uh, the LCMC is kind of not for nor against it. It's again left to the individual congregation to make that decision. Whether the congregation is allowed uh, a female pastor, um, they obviously take a stand against the LGBTQ uh, inclusion into ministry. That's sure. one thing that they are. Uh, opposed to, but um, you'll get that kind of little bit of a leniency and uh, where we're not quite unified in all aspects across the churches. So, so essentially church- maybe in secondary doctrinal issues or things that aren't primary. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you'll, you'll get more confessional Lutherans in the L- LCMC. You'll get more people who uh, would adhere to the book of Concord. Um, you would, you can probably say we're more like a Missouri Senate in okay. terms of that in that ballpark or a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say legalistic, but uh, we, we, we hold to a, a particular confession uh, and the LCMC is confessional in its roots, but there is some un- disunification or however you want to frame it uh, between some of the churches, for instance, like there's, I don't know, 15 churches in my, in my area, geographical area. I think there's one or two female pastors in that. And so uh, that's on the congregation to to draw that it's not necessarily the senate my congregation would never have a female pastor and i've been told that uh so it's just again it's power given which i think is rightly so and if the congregation in my opinion wants to condemn themselves they can hire whoever they want but i think it goes to the extent that you know, men need to be uh, stepping up and being the pastors in this group. Sure. So let me loop back to something you alluded to earlier about the ELCA, the the split from that. And I've heard you um, say that in a few of your podcast episodes too. So can you just explain for the listeners what that split was about? And when you say, I think you said earlier on the podcast, some, some of their more extreme views, um, I'm assuming you, in your view, you're saying those were unbiblical views, uh, could you maybe, you know, with being as gracious as you want or not want to be, uh, explain that for the listeners, the difference in that, and maybe what you might disagree with with the ELCA? Sure, absolutely. So uh, back in 09, the ELCA voted to allow uh, LGBTQ com- clergy into the church. And this was an allowance that was uh, global because the ELCA is a global Senate. And uh, it really was something that really stepped on the toes of a lot of conservative uh, churches, kind of those, you know, small town country churches in the middle of rural America um, that experienced uh, this kind of impact upon them. And uh, they were the ones that really pushed back uh, pretty heavily when you saw that that split happen. So the 09 movement was mostly the LGBTQ uh, inclusion inclusion of clergy and uh, uh, where they would have, you know, potentially a gay pastor or a gay bishop, uh, you know, and, and and obviously the ELC is very heavy on allowing women to be pastors because it can't get men to be pastors. So we have to, we have to open the doors to everybody because nobody wants to join us. Um, And uh, so there's a, there's that, that's really big pull. Uh, But in recent years, they've really started to kind of shoot themselves in the foot uh, where they have made just massive doctrinal errors. And one of the biggest things I think um, that affected my in-laws church, who had recently just left the ELCA for LCMC, is the moving away from proper biblical language. Mm. And the ELCA starting to try and replace or uh, 
essentially neuter God's gender. And they're not saying, they're trying to say that God is not necessarily a male, but that he's uh, above the sexes. Mm. And so we can, you know, refer to him as, you know, maybe in a female sense. And they try to use a text from Luke 19, where uh, Jesus says he acts like a hen to collect her brood. And so they use that as kind of a, a stepping point, but that's a really poor misinterpretation of the text. Sure. Um, and, you know, and, and my father-in-law always kind of states this, uh, you know, it, it's one thing when you're raised to say God, the father, you know, all of the creeds in the church history say God, the father. Uh, the Bible states it very explicitly. He's like, you know, if we, if the Bible says God, uh, our mother, God, the mother, however they frame it, right. I would be, you know, it wouldn't be a big deal because that's what the Bible tells us, but because it's one specific thing and the ELCA is trying to uh, de-gender de this concept and make it more, again, uh, open and inclusive for all people who might be troubled with specific language, uh, it causes doctrinal issues. Sure. And and so again, the ELCA has got a lot of problems. There's um, issues with social justice that is placating them. Uh, they really, I would venture to say this is uh, the, the gospel they preach in a majority of their churches is exactly what Paul preached against in yeah. Galatians um, chapters one and five and, uh, and two. And, and I think Paul nails it pretty heavy. And I actually had this conversation with my confirmands this morning uh, that uh, at the end uh, or about the middle of chapter five, where he says, if anybody preaches a different gospel, let them demasculize uh, themselves. So like, yeah. <laughs> it's just blunt. It's very to the and, point. And, yeah. And so this is what the ELCA is essentially doing to themselves. Okay. So it sounds, yeah, it sounds like there's some, uh, you know, this is something, a running theme on this podcast too, where we constantly see churches and denominations uh, allowing the gospel to bow to the secular culture instead of the culture bowing to the to the culture of the gospel which is what is actually biblical um, and we as we move along here we just keep seeing more and more concessions made and sometimes it seems innocent enough to some people like a gender change or a name change I think it's a pretty major issue but like you said it leads to all kinds of doctrinal issues as well um, here's a fun question I always like to ask uh, people is what led you to Lutheranism or to the LCMC? What, what what attracted you to that, or what what made you go? This is the denomination that I think most clearly and closely aligns with the with the Bible. Yeah, so I'll give a bit of a uh, I'll give the readers di reader digest uh, rundown <laughs> of my of my background. Uh, I grew up in a uh, semi grew up in a Lutheran church, so small uh, community, five hundred people three Lutheran churches, one Missouri Senate and two ELCA. There's still three Lutheran churches in this town today. Mm. Um, and so I got baptized, confirmed, and did some youth work. I was actually married in this Lutheran church in my hometown, uh, but then my wife and I kind of stopped going. And I would never have classified myself at the time as being a Lutheran. I just kind of went. I went. I didn't really know doctrinally anything about the Lutherans. Um, in fact, I really didn't know anything about Martin Luther. <laughs> right. And uh, so fast forward to my mid twenties, my wife is like, Hey, let's start going back to church. And so um, my wife grew up in the Lutheran church and had a lot more faith than I did and a lot more understanding of faith and uh, theology than I did. And so we started going to a non-denominational church, which I had said earlier. And uh, you know, it was a big church, but I got to know the pastor pretty well. And I was heavily influenced by his preaching. And as I kind of uh, had that spark uh, from the Holy spirit in my soul to call that, to call me back from the dead. Um, you know, I really can't tell you if there's a, a one specific day that was like, that was the day that it just happened. I think it was kind of a gradual, you know, over time of the softening of the heart each week was this, you know, chiseling away of it. And it, that spark, uh, ignited this concept for me to just uh, dig in and really appreciate uh, just theology at a whole. And so I started reading all of these theologians. I read Calvin and I read some of the other reformers. I read, you know, modern preachers and uh, I was heavily influenced by the Calvinistic view. And so for many years, I would probably, I would have classified my, 
classify myself as a five point Calvinist. And I was cage stagey for a lot of those years. (laughs) And it was mine mine uh, still flares up every once in a while. (laughs) I, you know, even not being a Calvinist now, I, I can, I still have that problem. I think it's kind of just rooted in our, uh, in our minds, but um, I, I, I was a Calvinist and, uh, I just, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with preaching. And it was uh, a January of 19 and my mother-in-law is talking to my wife on the phone and she's like, oh, has, you know, Alex found a school that he wants to go to. Cause I had been talking about going to seminary and I'd been talking about looking and I kind of was settling on going to Liberty university. It was non-denominational it, cost was you know, acceptable. It was a little more expensive, but we could pay for it. And, um, you know, I, that was, you know, what I was thinking, you know, go and do my couple of years, get my master's and go on and lead a non-denominational church. Right. And so she, she is talking to my wife and my mother-in-law goes, well, has Alex ever considered being a Lutheran pastor? I mean, uh, the ELC really needs Lutheran pastors. And so my wife presented that to me and uh, we did a little research, and uh, <laughs> that took me on this really wacky trip uh, over the course of the next couple of months. And we ended up uh, speaking to a local bishop who was just like, didn't give a hoot about me wanting to become a Lutheran pastor uh, because I wasn't rooted in a church for a number of years. There are requirements that you had to be active in a church for two plus years, and you had to be doing all these things in order to even considered for candidacy okay which i think is absolutely ridiculous to begin with um and so they have this premise if you would of uh you know regulations before you can even begin so uh he wouldn't give me the approval to become a candidate but in the meantime i got accepted to columbia or lutheran theological seminary in columbia south carolina i got a full ride offer so my wife and i fly down there in march we tour the campus we spend some time at the campus and realized uh yeah, this does not line up with our doctrinal statement of faith. We are, this is not us. And are, are you and still so, holding to doctrines of grace kind of Calvinistic view at that time? Oh yeah. Okay. The, oh yeah. I was still, you know, heavy five point Calvinist. And I made that known to a lot of the people who were in the school <laughs> and we had some good conversations, but we had some, you know, there's a couple, uh, you know, intense conversations. Like I even had a, a really, you know, deep conversation with the campus pastor. Um, and it was just, it, it was a really unusual experience. And sadly, uh, it led me away. It it, it really drove me away from teaching altogether. And so uh, on the way back to the airport, we had actually left early. We just packed our stuff. And after like, I think day two, we were like, yeah, we're gone. We're not going to stay until like the closing Cause they had this like ceremony welcoming new students and all that stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to deal with this right but on the way back to the airport. My wife and I are going back and forth talking about what to do next. And her grandmother's talking to her on the phone and she's like, Oh, have you considered LCMC? And I'm like, I don't know anything about this. So <laughs> I'm sitting in the airport. I download all these documents. I read it on the flight home. And before I land, I have a draft written to uh, the LCMC board requesting candidacy uh, through them. Cause I figured, well, you know, doctrinally, they line up with where I'm at conservatively, yeah. uh, you know, and I had this in the back of my head. I'm like, well, I'm still Calvinist, but I can I could I could be a Lutheran, you know, or I could play a Lutheran if I tried. Seems uh, close enough. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's some there's some doctrinal differences, but, you know, I'm like, I, I could probably pull it off and fast forward to uh, August of 19, um, where I finally got accepted into seminary, started in uh, at Sioux Falls Seminary, and I took my first class in the Reformation history. And my uh, professor just kicked my butt. I mean, yeah. every single thing that I thought I knew, I was challenged and had dismantled and uh, I had to rebuild a lot of my my theological premise, and uh, and I'm very thankful for that because it, it allowed me to kind of change my ability and actually gave me a, a different hermeneutical approach to the scripture, and and I and I to this day I would say you know whether you're Calvinist or or a Reformed or you know a Lutheran, uh, there's going to be differences. There's going to be different interpretations. 
But at a core, if we all agree upon the concepts of who Christ is and uh, agree on what the Bible states, we can we can have these great conversations on doctrinal differences. Sure. But like but we are now. Core, yeah. Right. Exactly. But as a core, there's massive agreements. And uh, and so it it for me, it was just kind of an, uh, an eye-opening experience to go through the school and to really be exposed. And I think that's the best way to explain it. I, you know, being exposed to authentic Lutheran preaching. And as I said earlier, it was really the school's uh, taking you back to saying, this is what Luther actually taught, right. not any of this, you know, new fluffy junk that you see in the ELCA or in the modern mainstream secular Lutheran churches. This is what Luther taught. And this is how you take that preaching forward. And, yeah. and to me, uh, it just, you know, I was kind of already, you know, prior to school kind of shifting myself softly away from the Calvinistic view. And I was challenging myself on some views with, you know, baptism and the Lord's supper, the sacraments and, and some other doctrinal issues. And I found that most of my uh, concerns in terms of like being challenged in doctrine were easily uh, overcome within the, the first probably six months of being in seminary. Obviously today, uh, I would probably consider myself to be a full confessional Lutheran just because of the depth of study that I've taken on in the last uh, two years in seminary. And sure. a lot of that could be demonstrated on the podcast that I host because I'm taking people now through this concept of what Lutherans actually believe and trying to articulate and make it easy for people to understand. Because I'll tell you, there's a lot of misconceptions about Lutherans and, yeah. and people, people discard us because they think we're heretics and they think we're, you know, they instantly they're drawn to the ELCA and uh, my, my whole kind of <laughs> approach is uh is i'm not a part of the elca if you look at my bio on instagram it's i haven't <laughs> I heard this like season that. not yeah uh, not and elca not elca because you know it's funny i had um i changed my my bio stack and i put lutheran pastor uh shortly after i got called here and i lost hundreds of people <laughs> and so i'm like i gotta do this i'm like i'm bleeding followers I'm like what's going on here <laughs> and so I put it in parentheses, not ELCA instantly gained like 200 followers. I was like, Oh, this is, this oh, is that's crazy. hilarious. All right. So as we wrap this up here, we've almost mm -hmm. been going an hour. The time's just been flying and I appreciate your time. Uh, yeah. I want to ask a fun one. So what was, sure. uh, so what are some of the, uh, theological or, or doctrinal issues that you left behind mm -hmm. as a Calvinist <laughs> that you, that you, uh, when you crossed over to confessional Lutheranism. What, what are some of those things that you went, yeah, I don't see it that way anymore. Uh, I mean, was it any of any parts of Tulip, any parts of doctrines of grace, any, any p teachings in particular? And um, I'll, uh, I'll give you discretion to talk about as little or as much as you want on that. Uh, yeah. So that's a, that's an hour long conversation, I think right there. Um, <laughs> well, maybe not we, that probably, long. <laughs> yeah. We could have probably made the whole show just that question. Well, I'll have you back um, and we'll do that next time. <laughs> awesome. Um, but I, I think the biggest things, uh, the sacraments were one, um, and, and I had had some soft leanings and I, I mean, I really wrestled with like baptism, uh, whether it was pedo baptism or credo baptism. I wrestled with that for years, yeah. even pre Calvinist and during my Calvinist years and, and into my Lutheran time, I wrestled with that. And that was a hard thing for me to really kind of just find, uh, validity and solidarity from scripture. Uh, and one person that really kind of helped me come to that is actually somebody I've never really even met was Chris Roseboro, uh, who's a you know obviously runs fighting for the faith, and yep. uh, he's you know I had a little bit of email correspondence with him, and he sent me this nice little uh, thirty some page document that he wrote uh, for uh, baptism and uh, from a Lutheran perspective, and I read that I'm like oh this just gives me every insight that I need. This is exactly what I I, I believe. This is what my conscience is telling me is acceptable. Um, I didn't necessarily struggle with the Lord's Supper, but uh, the articulation of it was one thing I left. But the biggest thing I think um, I've really, I didn't struggle to let go, but it really was kind of interesting was the concept of limited atonement. Hmm. And uh, that I think kind of uh, might anger some reformed people because uh, there's, there's this, you know, really kind of a legalistic, rigid view that you know, Christ only died for, you know, so many people. He, there's no way he could have died for all people. 
while the Lutherans don't necessarily believe in, in the universalism that, you know, every person is going to eventually be in heaven. Uh, the Lutheran perspective on the atonement is simply that this, the death of Christ on the cross was sufficient to cover all the sins of all the man of all time. But we also accept the fact that not all men are going to come to him. And we have a different application of, of faith, which changes uh, our hermeneutic, which changes the application of atonement. And that, I think, was probably the hardest thing for me um, to really uh, overcome because there's just there's so much depth to it. And there's a lot of different means to articulate the atonement. And, and I just find that reading scripture over and over again, I'm really comforted uh, with this knowledge that if, if Christ died for all people, then that includes me. And I don't have to worry about whether I'm one of the elect. I don't have to do a fruit check. I don't have to look inward. Um, I look extra nose. I look outward. I look to the cross. And I see that promise that in his death and resurrection, as Paul states in chapter five, that we will experience that same death and resurrection. Uh, first, Thess- first and second Thessalonians, as he writes to the church there, that uh, we will experience that same resurrection when Christ returns. Uh, all of that's promised to all believers. And, and I, f- I find it just to be very comforting to say yeah. Uh, that, you know, this is where I stand. And so I think limited atonement was probably the biggest thing. And again, like I said, it's probably the most shocking and controversial one because everybody wants to be you know, right. very rigid on it. Well, but, I've always said uh, for a long time that no matter what side of the aisle per se you are on limited atonement, we all believe in some type of limited atonement. Mm-hmm. Uh, some believe in uh, limited scope and unlimited power and others believe in limited power and unlimited scope. So as where the Calvinist might say, it's unlimited in its power, it is effectual for uh, you know, it's limited in its scope and who it's applied to, to where the non-Calvinist might say it's unlimited uh, in its scope, but it's limited in its power. So it's like, we, it's like, which one do you want? So it's funny that you mentioned that because when I talk to people who are either on the Calvinistic or reform side or, or, or looking at the doctrines of grace and things like that, that's the, they have the hardest time with that one with limited atonement. Mm-hmm. That was one of the easiest ones for me, which you and I yeah. would, uh, and maybe you can be, uh, you know, empathize with me because you used to be from that camp, but that was one of the easier ones for me. Um, I find that when you talk to most non-denominational, uh, evangelicals, okay. Uh, usually the eternal security is the easiest one for them. That's, that's where I see most of them jumping on and going, yeah, I can believe that once you're saved, uh, you really, you know, the, the, the work of, of Christ on the cross and, and the atonement can't be undone. Uh, still many don't believe that way. Uh, opposite of me, but I feel like that's usually the easy one. But limited atonement is the hardest one for most non-Calvinist, non-reformed to really grasp onto. And that's why I think it's, uh, you know, it's kind of telling when you say that's the one that was the most divisive, you know, divisive for you too, because I can only imagine if you had some brothers in the Calvinist camp uh, that you knew, they're going, what are you doing, man? Come on. You know, that's the one that, yep. <laughs> that we, that we really, uh, really like. Now I yep. would argue that I, you know, and we won't get into it here, but we could both argue that we have biblical reasons for why we believe that. Um, yep. I've always said, look at when I was going through my uh, whatever you want to call it, transformation or kind of my journey. Uh, I always took everything back to the Bible. Uh, it was very yep. hard for me to just take one person's word to two, three theologians and go, oh, well, I like that. So that's what I'm going to go with. Probably like I would assume you do as well, too. And you say, look, you're in seminary, you're reading theologians, you're reading pastors, you're uh, listening and watching. But ultimately, I think we would both agree it has to be measured against the Word of God. And yep. uh, on that, I think we we both do agree. Um, wow, we went a, an hour and three minutes. I told you 40 <laughs> minutes when I first messaged you, but you want to know what? I, I love it. I don't yeah. mind it at all. The time just flew by. We'll have to have you on again. But before we leave, why don't you uh, throw out social media plugs, all that stuff where people can find you, and we'll make sure we link you up uh, when the episode goes live. Sure. So you can uh, find me on Instagram. Instagram quorum.deo.life. And uh, I'm also on Instagram under Undying Light Ministries. And you can just, you know, obviously search either one of those and I'll come up. Um, I'm on, uh, I've got uh, Undying Light website. So it's undyinglight.org. I've got that podcast, which you can find on all major platforms. I'm also co host of A Matter of Truth 
which is the second podcast that I do. We release essentially one episode a month. Um, I'm a co-host with uh, Anthony from Speak Gospel Truth, mm. and uh, we do more of a question and answer type, you know, setup. And and I really enjoy that show. So, uh, in, in fact, I got to put a plug in for this one because we just did an episode on Jonah where we spent about an hour digging into. Uh, the biblical and historical construct behind the book of Jonah. Love it. And I, I thought it was a phenomenal episode. It's probably the best one I think I've ever done with him. And <laughs> right. so uh, I'm very, very pleased with how it turned out. So I hope your listeners go and check that out. Um, beyond that, I mean, uh, I don't really have much else, just the podcast and, and my Instagram page. I'm, I mean, I'm on Facebook, Alex Zink, uh, A-L-E-X-Z-E-N-K. You can find me anywhere, uh, send me a friend request or follow me on whatever page you want. I don't care. I'm pretty open to anything and everything, but uh, most of my scope is done uh, within the podcast realm. So Awesome. Alex, we thank you so much for being on the podcast. Keep up the good work online too. Love your posts on your Instagram account. And uh, I know that we are brothers in the Lord. You're now a past guest of the uh, Dead Men Walking podcast. So now your family, we might have to have you back on in the future. Yeah. Uh, Alex Zink, everyone. What the heck was that? Alex Zink, everyone. Oh, wow. He got laughter instead of applause. Um, but guys, thank you so much for listening to uh, another episode of Dead Men Walking Podcast. As always, you can find us at dmwpodcast.com. We have all kinds of fun merch there for you. Some of it's a little snarky, get you talking to your neighbors, bring out a little bit of that cage stage in you like Alex and I were talking about. Help support the show. Uh, you can get all our past episodes there as well. We appreciate you telling a friend, leaving us comments. You can leave us uh, email, voicemail, all that good stuff at the website. And uh, be sure to tell a friend. Guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, God bless. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dead Men Walking Podcast for full video podcast episodes and clips. Or email us at deadmenwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. None your biscuits. Be sure to check us out at dmwpodcast.com where you can purchase the best and snarkiest merch on the internet, support the show, and leave us a review or message. Dead Men Walking can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Dead Men Walking Podcast and on Twitter X at Real DMW Podcast. The Dead Men Walking Podcast is part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. For exclusive show content, be sure to download the Pub TV app and become a member. If you're a business that needs to reach hundreds of thousands of potential customers in your demographic, podcast advertising might be for you. Send all inquiries to Dead Men Walking Podcast at gmail.com. None your biscuits.